Hello, Christ City. All right, everybody, let's do the, the, the pre-sermon reading comes from Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and the works of your hands I sing for joy. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Thank you, Chris. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 92. That's where we'll be this afternoon. But if you remember where we were last week, the Psalm 143 said, Hide not your face from me. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you... In you I trust. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. That was our Easter Sunday prayer, a prayer at the dawning of a new day, the first day of a world recreated, the first kind of cry of, hey, the, out of the tomb, I see it, I can hear it, I long for it, I want it to be here more than anything. Our prayer poem this afternoon is a prayer seven days later, a prayer after the work that has been done can be kind of seen for all that it is after we've had a chance to think about, to reflect on the very goodness of an Easter Sunday. As the psalmist said, and Chris just read, it is good to declare your steadfast love in the morning. How great are your works, O Lord. Your designs are incredibly profound, the psalmist says. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard in the past these things that have been done, the doom of my evil assailants. But did you notice, I don't know if Chris, Chris didn't read it, but it was up there for just a few minutes right before Chris read, just a few seconds right before Chris read, and maybe there in your Bible too, that where the cycle of this day's prayer begins, where it's been prayed for millennia and millennia, did, did you notice the little title at the beginning of it? That's right. Psalm 92 is, my, again, maybe your Bible says it, mine, mine does in Psalm 92. It says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Now you remember the Sabbath day story, don't you? For six days, God labored in generative love, speaking into existence life, crafting the contours of existence, cultivating the fabric of our living, fashioning earth and sky and sea and forest and all sorts of living creatures, including the ones after God's likeness, humanity, male and female, you and I. After each rotation of the grand potter's will, there was this same defining observation made. And God saw that it was good. With very added to the six days declaration. And behold, it was very good. That's how Genesis chapter 1 ends. Taking us from in the beginning, there was nothing. There was, there was void. All the way into the very good of, of creation, God's work in creation. Yet as we continue to note in our calendar's lives, there are not six days, but seven. Genesis 1 ends with six days. But our calendar ends with seven. Genesis 2, chapter 2, the chapter in which the very good of creation finds in detail its daily rhythm and partnership with God and relationship with one another, is where in Genesis chapter 2, where work in the, of cultivating creation to flourish actually begins its start, is where we find the seventh day. Genesis 2, chapter 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, finished, done. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested. He ceased. He stopped on the seventh day from all this work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested, ceased, stopped from all of his work that he had done in creation. After God works, humanity, all of creation and truth, rests with God, ceases with God, stops with God, with God, before entering into our work within God's design. That's the way it was in the beginning. That's how our story begins. Of course, we all know that our work becomes significantly more difficult because of sin, right? Not long after Genesis chapter 2's opening words do we have the, the entry of the lie to, to Eve and the, and the ab- abstaining from, um, from jumping in of Adam and all the chaos that, that ensues. The peace of the first place begins to elude humanity as they're removed from the garden. But what we also notice in those first few chapters is that God went back to work creating. But maybe not so much creating as recreating. Recreating from within the mess that humans cause. Drastically, in the flood, he recreates a world in which says he won't destroy, but will renew and, and calls humanity back to the same first calling to, to have dominion and to be faithful and to multiply. He continues to, to recreate in the scattering at the Tower of Babel. Rather than coming in and letting humanity be all that we could be in our own eyes, raising ourselves to, to God's, he scatters and allows us to um, to stay humble. God continues to recreate subtly and slowly in the family of Abraham. It goes from major events, major drastic um, things, into trying to recreate through a family. And then he probably most vividly, at least most remembered throughout history, God drastically enters again once more to recreate in Exodus. He works again in recreation. After God's work of the first Passover, which for those who were at our Seder dinner, we got to reenact and remember in very vivid ways, God instructs His newly freed people to return to the original rhythm with Him, to find that living, existing, as well as life with others, is only living when it's life with Him. He says in in Exodus chapter 20, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the, Lord, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord our God. You shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested, ceased, stopped on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The generation after this first freed by God's work, the generation whose lives were established in the land of the living, the promised land, who by God's work and presence were able to settle and build, to tend and cultivate life in a new garden, they too are instructed to keep in rhythm with God. In Deuteronomy, just before they cross over into the promised land, they're told that you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath, to keep in rhythm with the same recreated order. Eventually, their children's children would, like the pharaohs of Egypt, forget the love and grace and work that established their life. And so, forgetting themselves, they rebelled against God and were not willing to listen to God. And Ezekiel, it says, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord, the one who sanctifies them, who sets them apart for holy service. But my Sabbath they've greatly profaned. For their heart went after their idols, their self-made way of living, their living life on their own. The self-forgetfulness, apathy, absent-mindedness, 
lust, longing, bitterness, busyness, doubt, or whatever caused them to forget who and whose they were, led them from the daily work in the land of promise and presence into a return to oppression in a land foreign and isolated. Still, as we've learned through the Lent and Easter, even in Death's Valley, in the darkest places, God is for us and not against us. He is against that which takes life, certainly, right? We've learned that. But this is because He's for life. And so even in the tomb of exile, God grants a vision of the life worth waiting for, worth living into, a life whole and holy, reoriented in God's presence through God's finished work and resting with Him once more. In the same words from Ezekiel, God says, Therefore thus says the Lord, They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid when I have brought them back and gathered from there from their enemies. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel and they will keep my Sabbath holy. I am their inheritance. And so for 400 years, they waited for their prince. That's what in Ezekiel, that's the one who's promised to enter in, to, to be the one who brings them into this this renewed vision of life with God. They wait for their Messiah, God's anointed, to do God's work of bringing them once again to a secure place, snatching them away from their enemies, all the things that would take life from them, and dwelling with them in a way like He did once in the garden. And while they would tell story upon story of the many witnesses to God's persistent love and grace and power in the years in between, They waited year in and year out to hear, it is finished. Admittedly, from a different place in the cross, right? But nevertheless, they hoped in the word of the Lord that he indeed would finish the striving for life. The striving for life would be at its end, and life in its full would come. They waited more than the watchman for the morning to see with their own eyes in the light of day the evidence of their enemies, the forces of evil, the leaders of oppression and injustice, the crowds of twisted and cruel followers, and even their own cowardice, shame, and collaborating sin had indeed been vanquished, doomed, the downfall inevitable, and so they would have nothing more to fear. Again, perhaps they desired a different sign, but the nail-pierced hands and the spear-pierced side of Jesus alive was the evidence of God's finished work and the arrival of their peace. That's why, as Rebecca read for us, when Jesus had said this, peace be with you, he showed them his side and his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. When Thomas, who had longed to see proof that the enemy had been put under, not that just Jesus was alive, but that everything against life had been put under, Jesus said, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand here and place it at my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Believe that what you've longed for is finally arrived. It is finished. It is this once and for all finished work of the Lord that has made God's people glad for millennia, birthed in them songs of joy, raised in them shouts of steadfast love in the new day's dawning, even as they recount faithfulness in the darkness and the shadows. It is this great work, God's incredibly profound, if not somewhat counterintuitive and paradoxical design of creation and recreation through his self-giving labor that is is compelled his people to say with the psalmist today, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. As in creation, so in recreation. After God's work, what God works for rests with him, stops with him, 
ceases with him. Or as Jesus put it, the Sabbath was made for man, for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. We were made to rest with God. This day of rest was created for us to enter into because God's worked for us, because God's finished his work for us. Our faith tells us that God is for us in creating and overcoming. God has and is working for us on our behalf for our good, and his work leads into resting with him and with him becoming what he recreated us to be. Remember what Ezekiel said, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between me and them as something to look at to show them what life is, what really, where life starts and what it, what it means and how it comes together. That they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who sets them apart for holy service, royal service, for purpose, for work. God work God's work leads us into restful, secure, non-anxious, peaceful worship. And from there, into our worshipful, confident, non-anxious, peacemaking work. It did so in Genesis, and it does so in Jesus. Our good work comes from resting in God's finished work. Our good work comes from resting in God's finished work. God worked, we rest with Him, and we enter into His work, and we return to His rest. God worked, we rest with Him, and then enter into His work only to return again to His rest. That's the whole and holy rhythm of life after Easter. That is the rhythm of life and not death. A cycle of living with God, not in the rinse and repeat cycle of survival that we're used to going to, right? Where it's five days of work, two days of weekend, 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 five days of work, five days of weekend. Of work, days of work, days of weekend. No, it's rest in God's finished work. God works, and we rest with Him, and we enter into work with Him, and we rest with Him, and we enter into work with Him, and we rest him and we enter in to work with him that's a rhythmic pattern of wholeness and holiness that fills our days if you'll allow me to elaborate on the decalogue on exodus 20 six days you shall labor and do all your work six days you shall in partnership and relationship with god join with him in his good work and the work that you've been crafted for created for set apart for but the seventh day is a sabbath a day holy to be with God, the Lord your God, totally immersed in His affection, His faithfulness, His finished work. It's only from the secure orientation of the day after God's work is finished, from the place of Sabbath, the place of worship, God's house, not a physical place, but a place of presence, a way of being in life, that we can see what lies before us in our work, that we can see the way we should go forward, from, every, from the very good into very good through the mess of not so good. That we're actually designed, even now in recreation, to move from very good into very good through the mess of not so good. At least I think that's what the song of the Sabbath, Psalm 92, implies. Now on Easter Sunday, if you remember, and if you weren't here, you maybe read it in the pastoral note this week, I asked you what an after-Easter life could look like. What does life after Easter entail for us? What would believing all the adversaries of our souls, the adversaries within us, the adversaries around us, have been destroyed by the work of God, change about how we live? If we believe that, that the end, that nothing can end us, but only God can continue us, that all the things that are after us won't, and they're, even at their best, be able to destroy us, but that God is the one who perseveres us. What if we believe that? 
What would a life lived believing that, that in this reality of our, of our adversaries being put to death, if we believe that we're not alone? That as the psalmist prayed last week, that, that he longs to guide us, to teach us, to let his good spirit lead us. That what if we believed we're not alone? Not meant to just figure life out. Not left to wander through our days. But rather shown, taught, and guided into God's good design and destiny. What if we believe that? Well, Psalm 92 is a prayer, I think, to help us refine and expand our imagination of life in God's finished work, of life after Easter. It's a prayer that allows our imagination to go just from asking, what if we believed it, into giving us images and pictures of the things that we're actually meant to believe, the things that might actually come from believing what God has done for us. That a prayer that hopefully will allow us to enter into the rhythm of life where God's finished work leads into our resting with God and allows us, sanctifies us to do a few things. First and foremost, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 92. We'll start in verse 6. We've kind of worked through the, the proclamation of what's happened that's Easter Sunday, right? We're, we're past the, the proclamation of all that Jesus has done, and now we're moving into what this life produces. But entering into the rhythm of life where God's finished work leads us into our resting with God, which sanctifies us, as God said in Ezekiel, to first and foremost live wisely. The dull and the dim cannot know, says the psalmist in verse 6. The fool cannot understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers take over like weeds, they are doomed for destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. As Dylan pointed out in our Monday Psalm post, from resting with God in his finished work, the psalmist can see what is often missed in life. The things that grow up quickly, the trends and movements and technologies and peoples that seem to sprout and prosper, that draw our heart and affections, our minds, attentions, that dominate our airways, our screens, our dreams, are more often than not like grass rather than trees. Pretty, but not lasting. Meant to be walked on, not meant to be the source of life. The psalmist, in other words, from resting in God's finished work, the psalmist can see what is temporal and what is eternal. The things that are doomed for destruction forever versus the one who rules forever. That's what the psalmist is able to see in this prayer. Imagine if you could go through your day, your interactions, your duties, your run-ins and relationships, able to distinguish the temporary from the eternal. What if you knew what was a lasting thing to do and what was a passing thing? What if you knew what really mattered versus what mattered only a little? Imagine if you knew what, what in the ordinary things of daily life, what was to be a priority and what was meant to be just moved past. Imagine what shape, uh, how that might shape where and how you spend your energy and emotions. If you knew, again, the temporary versus the eternal. If you're able to see what the dull and dim and the fool cannot. What, what you go got worked out, what, uh, sorry, imagine how that might shape what you get all worked up about and what you don't. What you prioritize and what you don't. What you stop doing and what you start doing. 
Maybe, just maybe, the tensions and questions we have about life could be clarified if we'd rhythmically rest with God in His finished work. Imagine that. Entering into a rhythm with God's incredibly profound design allows us to live wisely, says the psalmist. Or at least from his place, in the midst of it, this is what he sees. He sees what he needs to do, how he needs to live, to live wisely. He sees what's temporal and what's eternal. That's not all. Living in a rhythm with God's incredibly profound design also sanctifies us into living in courage. Verse 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered, isolated from life, cast out from your kingdom. We talked about this last week, but if God's enemies cannot stand against him and God is for us, then who can stand against us? What do we have to fear if God is for us and with us? If those things and people and circumstances that try and end us will not be our end, but will one day meet theirs. Imagine living free from fear. Not foolishly fearless. Not adrenaline junkie kind of fearlessness. Remember the first thing entering the rhythm of rest and work that does is it helps us to live wisely. It helps us to see what's temporal and what's eternal. But free from the bondage of fear. Imagine what your marriage would look like if you lived free of fear. Imagine what your career would look like your parenting, your neighboring, your suffering would look like if you lived in the courage that comes from beholding God's enemy's end, of seeing the end of all and God being the one who's left standing. Entering into a rhythm of wholeness and holiness allows us to live wisely, to live in courage, and to live confidently. Verses 10 and 11. But you exalted my strength, like that of a wild ox. You have poured me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Do you remember what Keith McCurdy said last year at our parenting conference? He said that for children to more than survive but thrive, they need to feel or be known. They need to feel or be loved. They need to feel and, and be a part of something more than themselves. And they need to feel and be competent, able to contribute, even in the smallest ways. What's true of children is true for us grown children of God, too. We, too, need to feel and be known and loved and a part of something more than us, to be a part of a people, a kingdom, God's family, which hopefully our journey from Advent to Christmas into Epiphany and through Lent and Easter and all the Psalms and stories that have filled those seasons have shouted to us, right? that you're known, that you're loved, that you're a part of something. That's what the last at least five or six months have all been about, to some degree or another, in some way or another. But we also need to feel and be competent, that we're able to contribute, to live in the kingdom, confident that we can withstand the labor and fulfill the task that God has given us. Able to, as God told Adam after the first Sabbath, work the garden and keep it. And here the psalmist returns to the source of confidence, to the source of his competence to enter the work ahead. The fact that God has exalted, made much of, raised up, empowered the psalmist's strength for the task ahead. 
the psalm, that the psalmist knows that God has anointed, raised up, exalted, made much of, of, empowered the psalmist's strength for the task ahead. That God has poured fresh oil. Poured fresh oil may sound weird to us, but as one commentator notes, the psalmist here receives a renewed anointing of consecration to serve God. It's God blessing, anointing the one who's praying and worshiping on the Sabbath for the work ahead. It is in receiving God's blessing, God's exaltation and pouring and outpouring, God's ministering that the psalmist sees specifically in the circumstances of his life and heart the downfall and doom of all that oppose his life. Only in God strengthening him for the task ahead, God anointing him for the calling that he would walk into, does he able to walk in and see specifically not just the enemies of God's downfall, but my enemies, my particular struggles internally and externally, the adversaries of my particular soul, specific soul, crushed and oppressed and pushed down all of their dooms ahead. Imagine if you entered the week ahead, exalted and anointed for God's service and the ordinary roles and relationships of your life. Imagine if you entered the week ahead, exalted and anointed, to work and keep your little part of the garden, confident that whatever lies before you, in opposition or an opportunity, you were competent for the task. Imagine what voices would be shut out of your head and heart if you knew you were exalted and anointed. All the lies in your heart, all the lies in the world that said one thing or another, that told you you weren't good enough, weren't able, aren't, aren't re ready, aren't capable. Imagine all the lies would be shut down. Imagine all the voices of co-workers and friends that would be shut down in your head and your heart if you entered the day a week knowing that you're exalted and anointed for God's service because God's blessed you. Imagine what you take on instead of putting off. Imagine what satisfaction would come from a day's labor, whether as a maid or a marketer, a son or a solicitor, a roommate or a room mom, a neighbor or a nurse, an engineer or a volunteer, whatever the labor called for that day. Imagine the satisfaction that would come from knowing that you entered into it, exalted and anointed for that particular thing. Entering into a rhythm of resting in God's finished work, flowing into our good work, not only sanctifies us to live wisely, to live courageously, to live competently, but finally, to live in peace and purpose. Verse 12. Those who live with you and others as you created flourish like the straight and beautiful palm and grow strong for mighty use like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our, of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and freshness to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The psalmist's concluding vision is a return to the garden of creation, to the house of the Lord, in the courts of our God. The psalmist envisions life forever there, a life that doesn't follow the cycles and of the seasons, nor does it wear thin with time but bears fruit in old age and is full of sap and greenness, freshness always. A life of holy beauty. That's what a palm tree represents as an embodied embodiment of graceful erectness, this, this unimposing, non-crooked or bent life. 
on the one hand, we see a holy and beautiful tree, the palm tree, and on the other hand, a life sturdy and mighty on the other. That's what the, frame, the famed cedars of Lebanon represent. Not a fragile life, but a life made for something. This something extraordinary is always made out of. In fact, that the temple of God was made out of, right? From resting in God's finished work, the psalmist sees a life in the peace of God's house, on his foundation, in God's faithfulness to relate rightly to us, to keep working after the work is finished. Living in such a peace, the psalmist is to declare, I think it may be your translations in verse 15, but it's to show the goodness of the Lord. Not merely to speak it, but for the entire life to be a declaration that God is good, very good. A life whose purpose is to live and in its living, speak and show off the goodness of God's creation. Imagine if you lived with holy beauty, with graceful holiness that was not flimsy or soft, not timid, but sturdy, made of something strong and from which something extraordinary was to be made. Imagine if the way you live showed off God's goodness. Imagine what sort of stories you tell your grandchildren of such a life. Psalm 92, like the days, the days on which it is sung, is an invitation to enter the incredibly profound design of God's good rhythm, to rest in God's finished work with Him, and to go into that good, the good work for which you were created and were crafted wisely, with wisdom, with courage, with competency, and with peace. Peace be with you, Jesus said that first Easter morning. Receive the Holy Spirit, He added, as He once again breathed life into His creation, just as He did in Genesis 1, a life whole and holy in Him. The author of Hebrews says, quoting, uh, quoting the Psalms, So today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts, but enter God's rest. That's going to be our invitation for the next few weeks together as a faith family. To enter into the created rhythm of rest in with God to working with God. That we enter into a rhythm of life. Post-Easter, our life is lived from a place of working and rest that come together in the rhythm that God has established. So let's do so now. Let's, let's by God's grace, begin to enter into this rhythm that God has for us. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take these handouts. Sorry, I forgot to pass them out at the break. Kyle, do you mind going, okay, going this way? I'll go this way, you go that way. Just to speed things up. So just as we've done the last few weeks, this will be our last time to kind of do this kind of guided prayer through the Psalms before we kind of move into a different way of interacting over these over through the rest of the series. But we wanted to just kind of have one more chance to pray the Psalms together, um, to enter into one Psalm, hopefully that moves us into life after Easter. And so what, what, what you have before you in your guide is just, uh, just a simple way to kind of pray Psalm 92. Um, from a place of Sabbath, the same place that, again, this, this psalm has been sung for millennia. For, from, from, from the Jewish people all the way to today, this song has been sung for thousands of years in a place of resting in God's finished work.
So what I want you to do is you can just read verses 1 through 4. They're printed out right underneath the first part of the instruction there. But allow the Spirit, just as we've talked about, to evoke, to bring to mind an image, a memory, um, of emotion, of an experience when your heart agreed that it was good to give thanks to the Lord. Something that time in your life, an experience where what God had done filled your heart with gladness and joy. Just ask the Spirit to, sh- to help bring back that to, to mind to you. With that experience held in your head, after you read verses 1 through 4, again, let that kind of be an invitation to bring to mind a place of where God, is, God has worked for you. When we're holding that in your mind, let verses 5 through 15 be your prayer for the rest and work that comes after God has worked. If a particular word or phrase or stanza draws your attention, rest there. Don't, you don't have to go through the whole thing. But, but in that place, whether it be a place in God's wisdom and His finished work, courage in God's finished work, confidence in God's finished work, peace and purpose in God's finished work, wherever it is, from that place, pray, pray boldly and passionately, Addressing the Holy One who is both for you and with you on the, this day, the day that He has made. Then when you're ready, as we've done in the, in, over this series, just come and receive the elements of communion. But, at, but not like we have done, but like we did last week. Just take those elements back to your seat. Don't, don't receive them yet. Just grab them. Come back to your seat. Hold on to them. Hold them remembering the work that has already been completed. That you're holding it right there in your hands. And if you haven't received the elements by the time Chad starts playing, that's your cue to come up and grab them, okay? Simple enough? Any questions? All right, let me pray for us as you enter into prayer, and then we'll have about, about four to five minutes to pray Psalm 92. Father, we thank you that from the beginning... Lord, our life and its living has come out of your work. Not just in speaking life into us, speaking us into life. Not just in breathing life into us. But Father, you have at the very, very beginning made us to rest with you before we work with you. That what we enter into, Father Lord, is not something of our own creating. That we don't come to this day at the end, Father Lord, um, hoping that we can get some sort of recharge. Because we've spent a week of striving and struggling to survive. But Father, we come back to the place of the very beginning, into life with you. And that you've created us to live with wisdom and courage and competence and peace. That even though, Father, things are broken, you have in Jesus started all things over again and called us back into that same good, very good rhythm of life. So I pray with my friends and for my friends this afternoon that your spirit would lead us into a longing both for Sabbath and for good work, for a life that is in rhythm, that is whole and holy in you. I thank you that you have made a way, that you've shown us the way, and that the way is Jesus.
In his name we pray. Amen.